Would you bet a few thousand dollars that you could sink an eight-foot putt? What about 10 grand that you could win a drag race against a Camaro with a thousand horsepower? If you bet $2 million, could you bet it all on one football game? Maybe you wish you could, but you probably wouldn't. Gamblers is about the people who did. From the Ringer Podcast Network, listen to Gamblers Season 2 on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. It is Tuesday, October 11th. When the news broke last week that Trevor Noah, the host of The Daily Show on Comedy Central, would step down after seven years in the job, I'm betting there was a big chunk of people out there, comedy fans, who were like, uh, Comedy Central still exists? It does exist. And though the network is a pretty sad shell of its former self, I'm old enough to remember when South Park premiered in 1997. It was a show that was passed on everywhere because it was way too raunchy. Yet it found a home and became incredibly successful at Comedy Central. Over the years, the network has had Chappelle's show, Reno 911, Tosh.0, Politically Incorrect with Bill Maher, Mystery Science Theater 3000, Win Ben Stein's Money, an eclectic group, but all shows that were unique and found an audience. I feel like in the mid-2000s when Jon Stewart took over The Daily Show and then with Colbert Report and others, Comedy Central really mattered. Fun shows, stand-up specials where you felt like you were discovering people, legitimate players in late night. Cut to today, it's almost entirely Seinfeld and office reruns. And The Daily Show is still there. That show generated about $25 million in revenue for the first six months of 2022, according to Kantar Media. Still decent, but way down from what it used to generate. And now it needs a new host in an atmosphere of decline, generally in cable and specifically at networks like Comedy Central, where there isn't sports or news to prop it up. The transition to streaming is to blame, of course, and there's lots of business reasons special to Comedy Central's owner, Viacom, now called Paramount Global, that have led to the atrophy of the brand. It doesn't really translate or mean anything in streaming, and that's a problem. That's what we're talking about today. Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg is back, and the topic is the very unfunny decline of Comedy Central. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg. Lucas, welcome back. You were in Asia for a couple weeks, some media conferences, you took some pictures of food. Uh, what did you, what's the one thing you learned from your trip to Asia? I mean, I learned a lot about the state of play between the different big Western companies and local players across Southeast Asia. Uh, I learned a lot about how the Korean TV business differs from the business everywhere else. 
um, where they sort of have an old school studio model of having these writers and directors who are kind of uh, maybe not exclusive, but like aligned with uh, major studios in a way that's a little bit different from what we what we have in the states. Um, learned a lot about the webtoon business. Uh, yeah, every, every day, as, as trite as it is to say, every day was learning experience. Wow, impressive! All right, let's talk about Comedy Central. Now, this this may seem like it's obvious to you. Um, I think it might be obvious to some of our listeners, but to many, it's not. Comedy Central is a dying brand, and it has been dying for a while. Uh, the entire linear cable bundle is dying. But there are issues that are pretty unique to this particular channel that I think are worth discussing. And it gets to this question of whether it makes sense to put any original shows on a cable network right now. Or is it just better to milk them for their carriage fees and their advertising revenue that they still generate, put Seinfeld reruns and the office reruns up against like one or two original shows and just play it out until the line of revenue goes to zero. What do you think is going on in the executive suites of these networks right now? I mean, they're all just milking them for cash until they die. I mean, you look at Comedy Central. So I did, I did a little poking around on old stories about the future of or the fate of Comedy Central. In 2015, New York Times Magazine wrote this big story about how Comedy Central was excelling creatively but faced business challenges. And it noted that the audience was declining by double digits. This was 2015. It has declined by double digits every single year since then. At the, at, at the same time, they set a show that was called Big Time in Hollywood, Florida, was drawing a paltry 350,000 viewers. How many people watch The, the Daily Show every night now, Matt? Uh, according to recent numbers, it's about 380,000 per night, which is amazingly low. The, the biggest failure or one of the biggest failures on that network seven years ago is now the audience of one of its most famous shows. I mean, Key and Peele was getting two million viewers. You just don't have an audience for live TV, especially not on a network like Comedy Central that programs like two hours a day, if that, at, at its peak, maybe three. Uh, so I don't really know what you're you're putting shows on there for, except to speak to a very specific audience and then make sure that cable networks don't want to drop, or excuse me, cable operators don't want to drop your channel. Yeah, I mean, that you have to sort of pretend that you care. And the big innovation that Comedy Central is overseen at Viacom Paramount now uh, by an executive named Chris McCarthy, whose big innovation when he came in was basically saying, you know what? We could put reruns of old shows on this network, and it would basically draw the same audience as the original stuff we're doing. So why again are we doing the originals? <laughs> yeah, I mean, look at the look at the the daily programming for MTV, Comedy Central. Yeah, and, exactly. And, Comedy Central's not unique here. I mean, it's the ridiculousness question. If you look at MTV these days, ridiculousness is on you know eight hours a day. And it's because it rates. It rates slightly above what they would do. I mean, a lot of people look at these brands, and if you're someone like my age, MTV 
and Comedy Central mattered at one point. That was a place you could go and discover new comics. And, you know, people like Amy Schumer or Kean Peel or Daniel Tosh. John any, Stewart. John Stewart. Any of these guys that that became big comedy stars, they have a tie to those early Comedy Central days. And now, I mean, you're not looking at Comedy Central for comedy. You're looking at TikTok. You're looking at Instagram. You're looking at YouTube. I mean, that is the engine for comedy these days. And if you become big, then you have a Netflix special. I mean, Netflix completely bought out that special business. Comedy Central and HBO, for that matter, were absolutely devastated when it came to comedy specials. The HBO is sort of clawing back, and now Netflix is changing its model, so it's not going to do as many of those. But Comedy Central was really left holding the bag here. There's nothing that they have that isn't elsewhere. Well, and there is space for comedic shows on television but but to your point a lot of what they did was sort of gifted sketch comedy and the types of humor that is just at this point probably better served to you on on YouTube and TikTok and i think a lot of even the mainstreaming tv networks have tried to figure out like what the right comedy shows are for them and and sitcoms and certain types of funny shows can still play whether it's you know, a, a new show like Abbott Elementary or some of the shows on FX that I would say are like barely comedies. Um, but I, I, Comedy Central has had the double whammy of a lot of its best programming being eclipsed by social media and being part of a company that just didn't have enough resources to invest in its cable networks. It sort of had to pick between streaming and cable, and it has mostly picked streaming. Yeah, and they do recognize they need something. Like, The Daily Show is not going to go away. They will find somebody to replace Trevor Noah. Um, I've heard that they're going to go out to some bigger names who will likely pass, who don't want to join a dying franchise that gets 380,000 viewers a night. Uh, then they will probably pick one of the correspondents or some other up-and-coming comedian. They have to have something there that like says to cable operators, oh, yeah, we're still programming the network. We're not just all reruns. Um, they are doing, I mean, I know I noticed that they're doing these kind of low-budget movies that will play on Comedy Central and then go over to Paramount+. Plus. They have a Rob Riggle movie that's coming out for the holidays called Cursed Friends. Um, I've talked to people involved in these movies. They're low-budget. They're like a couple million bucks. They get a decent comedy star and then surround it with like stunt cameos like Nicole Richie or Joey Fatone. Something like in the Sharknado genre. Um, but that's just to fill time and then put these movies on Paramount Plus. It seems like the future for these cable networks is finding things that they can plug the holes with, but that will maybe have a life on streaming. Yeah, well, it's if you can market the show for for TV and have it um, almost immediately go to streaming, or just market the show for awareness figure that people will find it in either place because I do feel like the type of person who is still watching Comedy Central live might just not be the viewer, might not be the same viewer as the as the person who's watching a streaming service. It, it's got to be an, an older viewer who's not switched over, right? Well, and they're doing, is that the reason they're doing all this adult animation? They're doing like a Ren and Stimpy, a Daria spinoff. I mean, that's nostalgia as well. I guess they're looking for people in my demo that remember those shows from yeah. when they were young and might still watch cable. Um, but Or they're just looking for stoners who have the TV on and don't know where to go. 
Yeah, the, the, I feel like the two twin strategies of the Paramount Cable Networks, or at least the, the ones overseen by Chris McCarthy, are the reruns and the nostalgia. They're, they did the same thing at MTV, where it was like, let's find the right real-world road rules, whatever, challenge, whatever it is, bring that back, because the only people who are still going to care about watching MTV are the people like you and me who watched MTV when they were younger. Yeah, and I still do watch the challenge on MTV, and they, they have been very pointed in that they don't put the challenge new episodes on Paramount Plus. You have to watch them on MTV. So that show has not fully migrated over yet. Um, and, you know, but they could do so much more. I mean, MTV has this archive. If you go on Paramount Plus, you can watch old unplugged episodes with like Nirvana and Pearl Jam. They put all the old MTV, not all of them, but a lot of the old MTV shows on Paramount Plus. If they just like leaned into the nostalgia thing on regular MTV and said like tonight it's 1993 we're going to have a Kurt Loder, you know, special on some movie or something. Like I think they probably get a little bit of interest from people that just have that nostalgia play. Yeah, 5000 of them. Maybe 5000 of them. Yeah, I think that's my might be wishful thinking. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. Let's talk a little bit about South Park because that is one of the Comedy Central success stories. Uh, we are now heading into 25 years of South Park. You've written a lot about this. You've interviewed Matt and Trey. They have made a fortune off of this. And Comedy Central made some pretty key errors in the very beginning of this franchise that have costed a lot of money. Explain the financials behind South Park. Well, when the the creators of South Park... Uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone were renewing their deal with Comedy Central, I want to say 2007, 2008, around then. They'd cre- they decided that they would um, they would ask for a 50% stake in all like online rights to the show. And I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher some of the timing on this. Like they'd created this website called South Park Studios where they were post putting up episodes. I forget if that was a, a part of this deal or predated it, but basically what happened is they created a website called South Park Studios which is rather than license South Park to other streaming services, they just put it up there. Anyone in college who wanted to watch South Park would use that. They generated some advertising money. But then that extended so that anytime South Park got licensed to a streaming service, and for a while it was Hulu, now it's HBO Max, they collected 50% of the money. Now you think about what some of these really valuable shows or these really popular shows are worth, especially a show like South Park that's got hundreds of back episodes. They, just from licensing deals for South Park, have made something like $500 million over the last decade. They recently, they recently redid their deal because Paramount 
like before deciding to go all in on Paramount Plus, sold it to HBO Max for about $500 million. So they get half of that. And they've used that to raise all sorts of money. They're two of the most ambitious guys in media, even though they've spent most of their time working on this one show. I mean, that's the crazy thing. They've done this one show for 25 years. That almost never happens. And it's still popular. And think about that. Think about what you just said. They negotiated for 50% of digital rights to South Park at a time 2007-ish, where YouTube was just becoming a thing, but we didn't even know what streaming services was. This is so short-sighted by Paramount. They had no idea what was coming, or they did and just didn't care. And they gave away 50% of their biggest show, essentially, to the creators into a streaming landscape that has completely defined the era. I mean, Paramount... This is a company that made one wrong decision after another when it came to the internet for a while there. <laughs> under under Sumner Redstone and then his lawyer, Phil Dowman or Philippe Daumont, depending on what you want to call him, they just did everything they could to tank the company. It obviously wasn't intentional on their part, but they always, always, always took the quick buck over the sound long-term decision. I mean, think back to what happened on The Daily Show. This is one of my favorite stories about the ineptness of some media companies. So John Stewart, who was the very popular host of The Daily Show, decided to direct a movie. He made this movie Rosewater a couple of years uh, before he left. And they said, okay, you go and do the movie for the summer. We'll have one of your correspondents sit in the chair and take over for the summer, and we'll just see how it goes. That correspondent was John Oliver. John Oliver gets this big perch to be the host of The Daily Show for basically the entire summer. Comedy Central and Viacom, they did not ink him to a deal to keep him there if he became successful. They gave him the show, put him in that huge spot, and didn't have him under contract. So when he became very popular and he did a great job... HBO came calling and I, I've talked to people involved in this. They're like basically, you know, reaching out to his reps. Like you guys must be under a long-term deal. Just reaching out to say we're fans. And the John Oliver people were basically like, no, we don't have a deal. We're, we're, we're free agents here. We can do whatever. They're like, you've got to be kidding me. Cut to last week tonight with John Oliver becoming gigantic hit on HBO winning Emmys seven years in a row. And this is a guy that Comedy Central literally put in the chair and then let get away. Do you think that John Oliver is now the most stable late night host, even though he's not technically a late night host? I think so. I mean, that show has figured out how to do the broadcast or do the linear and streaming thing. I mean, I think one of the smarter things they did was they put the show on Sunday nights, um, where most people, myself included, were like, what? A, a talk show on Sunday nights? Um, because the, the advantage there is he, get, he got the whole weekend of news um, when during the Trump years, and he can air it, and it feels like a newsier, like a comedy version of like a 60 Minutes show. So people watch on linear, but then if he does a great segment, it will dominate the news coverage the next morning on Monday, and they put all of those on YouTube. They really developed his audience by putting the long segments on YouTube and, you know, getting it out there in a way that drove audience back to the show. Um, I have heard, not confirmed, that John Oliver is now the highest paid person in late night, um, and he works much less than all the other hosts. He works so much less that they all want a John Oliver-style show. Trevor Noah would love a John Oliver-style show where he could do it 
do a weekly show 20 23 uh, weeks a year and then go off and do his touring thing we'll see if that actually happens and we'll see if it happens on a, a viacom paramount network but i think john oliver has basically shown the model for success in the streaming age yeah i mean if you can host a show once a week instead of four days a week who wouldn't want to do that well and the format gives the uh, it doesn't feel so topical i mean it's topical but it doesn't feel like the nightly monologue that all of these daily talk shows do and that's going to be the real challenge for moving forward is how do you reinvent late night for streaming netflix hasn't figured it out really um you know hbo has has john oliver paramount would love to have some kind of a a late night type show that works on streaming. The people who are trying to figure out who will replace James Corden at 1230 on CBS, they want a show that is not a traditional late night talk show, whether it's sketch comedy or rotating hosts or some kind of a John Oliver desk show. They want something that will fill that spot, but also work on streaming and play multiple times a week. So that's the real challenge now. I mean, James Corden's show what, uh, didn't feel to me like a traditional late-night talk show, only in that it feels orchestrated to just manufacture viral moments on a weekly basis. They came up with all these different skits and ideas and pranks that were mostly for YouTube. Jimmy Fallon was the same. And the only reason that, that Stephen Colbert... It, not the only reason, but the big reason Stephen Colbert, it felt like, came back and, and eclipsed everyone was because during the Trump presidency, he was the person that people wanted to hear from. Yeah, and I think that's the challenge now, is, is if late night shows exist only for viral moments on YouTube, then why don't they just exist on YouTube? Well, and, and, and then why do, <laughs> why, and why do they cost so much money? Because people can make viral videos on YouTube for a right. tiny fraction of the cost. Yeah, why are they paying you know, these hosts eight figures a year to make viral videos on YouTube? Also, if you're a comedian, you, because of the, just how, how, how robust the touring business is, in part because of, the, kind of the, the Netflix effect with those stand-up specials, those big comedians can make a killing on the road. True. I mean, the answer to that, the reason why they do it and why they still feel that it's justified paying these hosts is because you get much higher CPMs for these television shows and you can package advertising across the day parts where you're buying the Tonight Show, but you're also buying Prime Time or you're also buying the Today Show. So there, it's, I don't want to seem naive on you know, why these shows exist. They exist because TV is still considered a premium environment, but those numbers are dropping. And they're going to continue to drop. And if someone out there, some young producer, can figure out the late night format for the streaming age, that person is going to get very rich. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think Ted Sarandos would probably give that person $50 million. He's he's tried to create create whatever the late night talk show is for Netflix at least a half a dozen, if not a dozen times at this point. I think it's going to be producer Craig. Craig, you have ideas, right? Ted, let's talk. Uh, all right. I've got ideas. Yes, Ted, you, you know where to find him. Uh, the town at Spotify.com. So back to Comedy Central. What's the, what's the tale here? Wh how long does Comedy Central last as a brand? I mean, they're, they're, it's, it's going to, it, it is not going to transfer over to streaming, in my opinion. There is not going to be a Comedy Central tile on Paramount Plus in five years. Do you agree or disagree? Do you disagree? No, I agree, but I don't. I don't see 
why they're, they can't find a way to use some of their brands. Sort of a missed opportunity for them. Because the brands are dying. I mean, what does MTV mean to anyone under 40? Not much. That's why, I mean, I think they've tried to call themselves a house of brands in the past, actually, and I will admit to laughing every time they do it. Um, yeah, a house of brands from 25 years ago. That's that. The answer to that question is just how long do you think the the cable bundle sticks together, right? Because it's not like they're going to shut it down. I mean, maybe they will. Um, it's it's not as valuable to them as as ESPN is to Disney, but the 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 brand will last as long as Paramount is still distributing channels on TV. They've got like five or six quote unquote core brands. Maybe they'll consolidate a couple of them together if they can stop getting any affiliate fees out of it. Um, but this is really a, a question of is Reed Hastings right that cable's going away in five or ten years, or or will it have a much slower decline? The challenge for this particular company is that it doesn't own any must-have network, meaning it doesn't own anything with sports. If you look at the Viacom slash Paramount channels, it's MTV, it's Comedy Central, it's BET, it's Nickelodeon, it's uh, VH1, networks that were once great brands, but the content is migrating to streaming and there's nothing, there's no news network, and there's no sports network. Now, you could argue that CBS, which is also in the fold, will compensate for all of that. And you can attach all these networks to CBS in your carriage negotiations. But how long is that a good argument? It's not like Disney, where they have ESPN, and they can say, if you want Monday Night Football, you got to take all this other garbage. Yeah, well, can you is is there any channel that is must have that doesn't have news or sports? I don't know. Maybe USA with wrestling and does that count as sports? That's related. That's a live event. I don't think there's any pr- channel that just on the merits of its entertainment programming is considered a must have anymore. Yeah, and that's going to accelerate in the next couple of years as the investment moves over to streaming. Uh, I don't, I just don't I mean if you talk to executives now there is no reason to invest in scripted or increasingly unscripted new shows on these cable networks other than the fact that they still make way more profit from their cable networks than from streaming but, yeah but because yeah. because that that is due to legacy carriage deals where they get money from these these carriers but what are they going what are the carriers going to do that's the question are they going to drop these channels and further devalue their product? Probably not. Maybe some might. Something Dish, who goes cheap on this stuff, might say, you know what? The Paramount channels just aren't worth it to us anymore. We'll just drop them and see what people say. Yeah. I mean, what, Disney- happen- what happens if we give you 25 channels for $25? Is that suddenly, uh, will that make you get cable again? I think that the lack of investment in these brands is going to prevent them from successfully migrating over to streaming. The reason why a brand like Nat Geo, which was a television network, why that has successfully come over to Disney Plus is because they put money into it and they put a content investment strategy into Nat Geo. No one is saying, I can't wait to see what the MTV tile on Paramount Plus gives me. Has has Nat Geo successfully migrated over to streaming, or are we just deciding it has because it exists within Disney Plus? I watch it, and I have a kid who watches the nature stuff, and you know there will be documentaries and stuff on it. It's probably cer- it's certainly not delivering what some of the others are, but it it does feel like 
it's adding value to the Disney product, the Disney Plus. To me, I've not seen any objective stats on this. I think the Nat Geo brand is strong because they were really good at Instagram. I don't know that that, <laughs> that Disney. It's also had a hundred year old magazine. I mean, th- <laughs> there's a lot of things going on with Nat Geo, and there's a an aspirational element to it that they get value out of. But my point on this is that it's not like the MTV brands, the VH1. Are you gonna are you gonna click on the VH1 tile on Paramount Plus? I mean, those shows are going to have to live on their own and develop brands on their own. I think the failure to invest in these brands is going to prevent them from being significant on streaming. And that's going to potentially be a problem that these companies don't seem to care about right now. Yeah, I mean, look, some of them have made an effort to migrate the brands to streaming, but it it feels like most of those haven't really mattered. You know, HBO Max has the tiles for all the different things within the Warner Brothers Discovery universe. Uh, Paramount Plus, I think, has some. Disney Plus, as you mentioned, has it. Um, but I don't. I, I really don't know who's searching that way. I think most people are probably just looking for individual shows or are waiting for that the curation to feed them something. I, I don't know that they're right. scrolling for the Adult Swim tile on HBO Max. The algorithm replaced it all. The algorithm will own us all. All right, Lucas. Thanks very much. Thanks, Matt. All right, we are back with the call sheet. Craig, have you been watching SNL this season? I watched the first episode. I'm going to watch the second, but I haven't yet. I usually just find it on YouTube now because I don't have a Peacock membership. I know. I think that's an understated problem for them. It was on Hulu until this season, which a lot of people have. And now if you want to watch it, you got to have Peacock or just see the clips on YouTube. They should just air it on SNL. I mean, on YouTube live. (laughs) some point yeah the, the the money the money prevents that from happening but uh yeah. it got me to click on peacock i've been you know interacting with peacock a lot more this fall just because all the nbc shows are back there so my prediction if you've noticed that there's been a cast member not in the credits these first two episodes cecily strong who has been on the show for years and is one of their more popular players they they've not officially announced that she is leaving the cast um, she happens to be in L.A. doing a one-woman show uh, on on stage here in L.A. My prediction, Cecily Strong will not finish the SNL season as a cast member. They may bring her back for a couple episodes, but my prediction is she's got one foot out the door and she will likely not finish the season. So you think they will publicly announce that she has left the cast sometime yes. soon? Yes, I do. But I, I think she may go back for a couple episodes. I mean, they've done this over the past few yeah, seasons. Kate they've McKinnon let, would leave and go do movies and come back. Totally. They've let people come and go. But I think Cecily Strong probably should have left last year and mm-hmm. didn't for whatever reason. And I think that they will likely announce that she's leaving before the end of this year and probably not finish out the season. Maybe they kept her on retainer in case every new cast member was an absolute disaster and needed her <laughs> to come back. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, don't get me started about SNL this season. I don't think it's working. I don't. I don't. Just getting I, started. They're, they're getting their sea legs. I know. I know. It's just a lot of groaners. A lot of. Groaners. I thought the first episode wasn't that bad. I thought the be real sketch was funny. A couple things were pretty good. There's some there's some okay stuff, but but when Miles Teller is the funniest person in your episode, not good. Yeah. All right, so that's my prediction. No Cecily Strong by the end of the SNL season. That's the show today. I want to thank Lucas Shaw. I want to thank producer Craig Horlbeck. And I want to thank you. We'll see you later this week. 
This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.